But as we, as we end this series, I, you know, I thought about it. We could go on and on with this series. I've, I've enjoyed it. It's just been fun. As, as we look at this, though, how do you know what Jesus really said? kind of matters, doesn't it? If we're talking about Jesus and we're followers of Jesus, and if his words are really that powerful and that important, we need to know the, what he said. So you can go back and look at a sermon we did where we talked about that. But the reason we trust what he said is what we have is we have eyewitness accounts. The people who were actually there wrote down what he said. And I love that the Bible is this way, and I love that God planned it this way, where we have those four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you get four different looks at the person of Jesus, just like you would if, if you were describing it or somebody else that you know. I know for me, there's times where you know, someone might ask me what somebody was wearing. I probably couldn't tell you. I probably won't be able to tell you what I wore today, tomorrow. Just, I just, that's not me. But I know other people who know every detail. They'll know everything about the collar. I mean, everything. And that's cool. But you look at Matthew. He was a tax collector. His book is very orderly. You'll see it's, it's put into sections. They'll have a discourse section, a teaching section. They'll have a time where he's interacting with the Pharisees. They'll have a time with miracles. And he just orders it that way. It's interesting. Mark, we know, wrote down the memories of Peter. Mark, even though it's one of the Gospels, it's the shortest one. It's actually nearly half the size of the book of Luke. It's just a little over 600 verses where Luke has 1,200 verses. And if you think about it, that's kind of uh, Peter's personality, right? Always in a hurry to get somewhere, tell his story. And then the book of Luke, we know that he was, he was actually investigating. He did it as a historian. He went and he got stories that nobody else has. So he went and interviewed Mary, no doubt, and that's where we get Mary's song after she finds out that she is going to bear the Christ child, and she goes and visits her cousin Elizabeth. All those details are in Luke because he went and investigated as a historian. Then the book of John, it's very uh, philosophical. It opens up and it says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. And those thoughts and ideas would have been something that would resonate immediately with the early church. Because they would have still been awash with all the Greek philosophy and the idea of the word. And think about this. Can you think of any words without, can you think of a thought without putting words to it? That's the idea there. If Jesus is the word, it's the thoughts of God. It's God himself, God incarnate. It's a beautiful way to look at it. And as we have those eyewitness accounts and they record things Jesus said, that's why we trust it. So let's talk about this. Some things Jesus never said. He never said, don't worry, be happy. Now, I was thinking about this song. Uh, that was actually Bobby Farron, or McFerrin. Do you guys remember that? Remember how it started out? Got this little song I wrote. Remember that? Did you know it was the first a cappella song to actually hit a number one? Do you remember what year? <laughs> it was 80-something. It was 88. And for some of you other fans in the crowd, it actually it took the number one spot in September of 1988. It knocked off Guns N' Roses' Ch Sweet Child of Mine. I think Sweet Child of Mine has probably endured more than the, the Don't Worry, Be Happy. But I'll tell you this, as a youth pastor and during that era, there, I, I think almost every single high school graduation I went to, that was their theme song. I don't know if you remember your theme song for the year you graduated, but that year, that, that song was everywhere. It was pretty funny. But you know what's funny about that song, too? is being happy seems to be the number one goal of people in the United States today. I don't know about other countries, but I know people here, being happy seems to be everything. Everything measures by how happy you are, and I determine my own happiness, and my happiness is determined by me and what I think. It's sad because the goal in life is no longer duty or, or to be respected or, or to, uh, to serve or, or have honor or God or other people. It's about me, me. I want to be happy. And if I'm happy, then everything's okay. 
The problem is not everybody's happiness lines up with everybody else's happiness. And then when your happinesses bump into each other, somebody's not going to be happy, right? (laughs) So I think about this. As individuals, it's all about what I feel, what I think. and, And I get to decide my reality. And then my reality, you have to agree with my reality. Or I'm not going to be happy. Have you ever noticed that? Do you guys sense or see like maybe a little contradiction in there? Because if you're telling me that I have to agree with your reality, what if my reality doesn't agree with your reality? Whose reality is real? And who's going to be happy? But in a way, you're saying you can't disagree with my reality. But wait a minute. You're saying that I have to agree with your reality. Somewhere there's a contradiction there. Somewhere it doesn't seem to add up. Seems like, in a way, you're telling me that I have to agree with that. And it's funny, I, I, I don't really tell people how to live. What I do is, I'm, I'm just the messenger. The fact is, what I try to line up, what, what we as Christians try to line up, is with what the Word says, what Jesus said. So as we think about that, and think about this, he's the one that we're talking about. Did, you know, he, he didn't say, be happy. Now, he said a lot of things, but he didn't say that. Because happiness is usually based on circumstances, and it usually changes from moment to moment and time to time and person to person. Have you noticed that some people are generally just happy? They're kind of always in a good mood. Have you ever noticed that? Some people, maybe not so. You notice some people's face just looks smiley all the time, and some kind of have that, they call it that RBF, you know, the resting business face. Have you ever noticed that? Where they just look serious all the time. And you never really know what they're thinking. And I've made the mistake of asking somebody, are you okay? Are you upset? And they're like, no, why do you say that? Well, you, you look upset. Well, now they're upset. That was awesome. So I, I understand that's the thing. And then some people are generally not happy. Or maybe they're really quick to be not happy. I mean, I know those are things. Does Jesus want you happy? Did he ever, can you think of anything he said about happiness? I mean, I was thinking about things he didn't say. He didn't say this, do whatever you want to others and you'll be happy. He didn't say that. He didn't say this, think only of yourself and you'll be happy. He didn't say that. He didn't say, spend whatever you get, however you get it, on whatever you want, and you'll be happy. He didn't say that. He didn't say, get as much money as you can and you'll be happy. He didn't say that. He didn't say, take whatever you want from whoever and you'll be happy. He didn't say that. He didn't say this. He didn't say, gain control over your whole world, and you'll be happy. He didn't say, gain control over your kids, your spouse, your job, politics, health, wealth, your reputation. He didn't say that. He didn't say, buy whatever you want. He didn't say that. He didn't say, have the biggest, best, follow me here. He didn't say, have, you need to get the biggest, best, newest, fastest, strongest, Bike, car, kid, wife, job, boat, plane, truck, dog, dress, business, Facebook page, body, and you'll be happy. He didn't say that. You know where I got all that from? Just cruising through social media. I'm not kidding you. I just cruised through a bunch of social media pages and like, huh, that's important to somebody and it's going to make them happy. At least they think so. Jesus did not say that. Did he ever talk about happiness? You may not have caught this part because uh, certain words in the, in the Greek are translated different ways in different versions of the scriptures. And the reason they do that is because those words have different meanings. Now, in English, it's, English is one of those languages where we use so many meanings for one word. Like, like we talked about this a few weeks ago. We say we love pizza, I love my dog, and I love my wife. Those are not the same meanings for love. And we know that. 
But in Greek, they get very specific. It's an interesting thing. Jesus, he, uh, let me just read it. Matthew chapter 5. One day he saw the crowds gathering, and Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down. That's how Jewish teachers typically would teach. They would sit. And then he was up on a mountainside, so you can imagine the natural acoustics so people could hear this. His disciples would gather right around him as the closest ones, and then he began to teach them. This is the part in the book of Matthew which we call the Sermon on the Mount because it says he went up on a mountain. Now Luke has a version of this sermon where it says he was on a plane. And this is one of the cool things about scripture too. They give all these details that tell you somebody was there to notice it was on a plane. Somebody was there to notice it was on a mountain. And those two versions, those two sermons are a little bit different. And some people have said, well, look, it can't be real because the sermons are different. The Sermon on the Mount's different than the Sermon on the Plain. What I like to point out to people is you realize Jesus preached a lot, right? And he traveled a lot of places and preached. And most of the time, you who come to the church here, you hear, I prepare a sermon for one week, and that's it. But if you're an evangelist and you're speaking like Jesus was doing, walking around and and teaching in different places, he was going to use basically a lot of times the same sermons and change it for the crowd he was with, change little things here and there. So that doesn't surprise us at all. So he starts to teach. And he says, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Did you catch the happy in there? I don't know. I don't know about you, but most of us are like, wait a minute. I'm not trying to be poor. Right? That doesn't sound very happy. Now, the Phillips translation, it translates it this way. How happy are the humble-minded? For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. The Amplified Version pulls it all out. And this is what it says. Blessed, spiritually prosperous, happy to be admired are the poor in spirit, those devoid of spiritual arrogance, those who regard themselves as insignificant, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, both now and forevermore. I think, I think the thing about it is we lose it in here because we think of happiness as what we're going to get. And I'm going to get something that's going to make me happy. I get a present on my birthday and it makes me happy. You know, I, I come home from work and, and something happens really nice and it makes me happy. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about a happiness that is a state of mind. It's a condition because of the spiritual condition you're in. You are then happy. It's different. He literally says, spiritually prosperous, happy to be admired. It's a totally different way to look at it. But wait a minute, did he actually just say that being humble is going to make you happy? That doesn't, that doesn't compute with most of us, does it? I mean, there's no money involved in that, right? There's nothing shiny, nothing new, nothing big, nothing fast, nothing, right? How can that be? How can being humble make you happy? Humility, really? Look at the next one. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. God blesses, makes you happy, or you will be happy if you are mourning For you will be comforted. It's getting better, isn't it? Basically, he's saying, if you're sad, you're happy. Is that what he just said? You might think so on the surface. But again, if we look at the Amplified Version, it pulls it out a little bit more. It says, blessed, forgiven, refreshed by God's grace are those who mourn over their sins and repent. For they will be comforted when the burden of sin is lifted. Now, obviously, we've all mourned at one point or another. You may have lost a friend or a family member. You may have lost a relationship. You may have lost something. You know, they say that mourning can happen anytime we lose something of value to us, a job. It could be a, a good friendship, maybe. 
Maybe somebody moved away and you mourn. This mourning he's talking about is different. What he is saying is, when you have had the weight and guilt of sin lifted from you, you are truly happy. Now, if you've experienced that, you know what I'm talking about. If you have not, maybe the Holy Spirit's speaking to you about that, and he's calling to you to ask for forgiveness and let God forgive you. That's the thing I think people a lot of times they don't realize. I mean, the world we live in today, they, <clears throat> they don't realize or understand even what sin is, and they look at what they're doing, and they don't, nobody likes to be told they're sinning. I mean, that word sounds so horrible. It's like we even hardly even hear that word. And the idea to confess sin and to say you're sorry. And, but let me ask you this. Have you ever been in a relationship with somebody and maybe you legitimately did something wrong and they called you out on it? What do you normally feel right away? Defensive? Angry? Can't believe I got caught? That's how the world feels right now. So when there's sin in their life and that's pointed out, their immediate reaction is to say, who are you to tell me that? You can't tell me that, right? So that shouldn't be so surprising. But let me ask you again about that situation. Have you had the experience where you, you realized and you felt sorry for what you had done? And then you go to the person and you, in humility you tell them that you are sorry and you ask for forgiveness and maybe you even make retribution in some way. And then do you remember how that feels when the relationship is restored? Do you remember the weight that that takes off of you and how you feel like once again you just feel light and happy? That's what he's talking about. He's talking about something that, unfortunately, people who are not walking with the Lord, they probably can't understand because they haven't walked through that process. And instead, what does our world do? Our world proclaims their sin and has pride about it. Where the, what, what this is saying is, no, the, re, the correct response to things that are in error is to understand the error, to own it, and to feel responsible and to be sorry. When you actually face what's wrong, he'll fix it. And true freedom lies in that. We're all bent towards sin. I don't want anybody to get the idea that I'm saying elevating one sin above another. We're all bent towards sin. That's how we are. I mean, it's, just, it's our inheritance from Adam and Eve. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. We, we struggle with different things. And unfortunately, a lot of times, we don't have a lot of grace for people who either struggle with things we don't understand or don't struggle with, or we don't have grace for people who maybe are struggling in something we've gotten victory over, and we can't remember what it's like to be in struggles. Maybe you, maybe you do not have an addictive personality or have never been caught in addiction, so you can't understand why somebody would struggle with that. I know C.S. Lewis wrote, he wrote about, he said, he, said he's, he extends a lot of grace, for instance, to people who, who are struggle, struggling with, with the addiction to gambling because he has never struggled with that so he doesn't understand it on the other hand he said he understands being tempted with women and alcohol because that's something he did struggle with i think for us as christians a lot of times you know it, it ends up being that way that we struggle with that and what does scripture tell us to do paul in galatians said dear brothers and sisters if another believer is overcome with some sin you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back under the right path be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself we live in a world today that says, you can't judge me. The Bible says not to judge. What the Bible actually says is, maybe judge is the wrong word. We should use discern. We know what things that are wrong. We know that when things are wrong. And this particular verse in particular tells us that with another believer, and we see them overcome with a sin, we are supposed to identify that and come alongside them and gently help them. Not condemn them, not be pointing fingers, but gently and humbly help that person onto the right path. And that's assuming they want help because a lot of times people are stuck in it and they don't want help yet. 
Be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Is all the sin the same? Most people, they're reflective. We reflectively answer, well, no, yes, all sin's the same. Well, yes and no. It's, it's the same in the sense that the ground is equal at the foot of the cross and we all need redemption. It's the same in the sense that it draws us away from a relationship with God. But there are sins that are different. I mean, Scripture's clear about the fact that some sin has lasting effects. Some sin affects other people. The fact is, you, if you lie to somebody, trust is broken and that person is hurt. If you kill somebody, that person is dead. There's differences in sin. We know that. It's, it's obvious. 1 Corinthians 6 says, run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as, as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and who was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. There's differences. These things are different. This one, this one just glares at me. And in, in our world today, you hear about so much about human trafficking and things happening in the world and kids being taken advantage of. Look at this. Jesus said this. If you cause one of these little ones who trusts in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. What sorrow awaits the world because it tempts people to sin. I love this. Temptations are inevitable. Everybody's going to be tempted. But what sorrow awaits the one, the person who does the tempting. So if your foot causes you to sin. So here Jesus starts to employ hyperbole. He says, cut it off and throw it away. It's better to enter, enter eternal life with only one hand or one foot than to be thrown into eternal fire with both your hands and feet. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better to, be, to enter eternal life with only one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the, the fire of hell. What's he saying there? There's things that you know that are in your life that maybe are too much of a temptation, so get them out of your life. Take them out of your life. Sometimes it might be a person whose influence over you is too much, and you know that. What else did Jesus say about being happy and blessed? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, he says, Blessed, and this is right out of the Amplified, inward, peaceful, spiritually secure, worthy of respect, are the kind, the gentle-hearted, the sweet-spirited, the self-controlled, for they will inherit the earth. Gentleness, humility. I want to keep reminding you, that's what makes you truly happy. The gentleness and the humility that comes from God's spirit living in with you. The next one he says, blessed, joyful, happy, nourished by God's goodness are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who actively seek right standing with God for they will be completely satisfied. Does that make, is it just so obvious that it's easy to understand? The fact that those people who, whose heart and attitude genuinely seeks to live righteously, that's different than somebody who genuinely looks for ways around righteousness or people who look to try to find a way to get around it. Doing not, it's not about just doing whatever makes you happy. It's actually seeking and walking in the ways of righteousness. The next one, blessed, content, sheltered by God's promises are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. By definition, mercy is given to somebody who does not deserve it. By, by definition, that's what mercy is. Unforgiveness, bitterness, grievance. What that does is it pulls you down and literally makes you sad. Where what he's saying is mercy, you extending mercy, makes you happy. Blessed, anticipating God's presence, spiritually mature, are the pure in heart. Those with integrity, moral courage, godly character, but they will see God. I was reading this morning in, in Psalm 139, and even as Pastor Nick was 
leading prayer worship time, he was talking about God knowing who we are and our spirit and where we are. And I was reading that chapter again this morning. And as we got to the end of the chapter, it says, search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Is that the attitude of your heart? Is that what you're at? Can you literally say to him, God, search me, know me. If you can, then you're happy. It's interesting how the cares of life, everything goes away when our relationship with God is right. When his relationship is the most important thing and we're following him with our whole heart, then no matter what comes, you're not shaken by it. None of it matters. It's like when you're in a secure home and you, the rain is rain, the pouring, but you know your basement's fine. You know it's all fine. But you know how it's the, the other way around when maybe you've had some problems in the basement and you're wondering, oh God, is this going to flood today? You know the difference. But when it's right, when the relationship is right, then happiness is there. Blessed, blessed, spiritually calm with life, joy in God's favor are the makers and maintainers of peace for they will express his character and be called the sons of God. Peacemakers, peacemakers. As Christians, we're called to be peacemakers. We're called to mend fences. We're called to mend relationships. We're called to extend the olive branch to be the first one to take the first step and to help make things right. Now, of course, the other person may or may not want to do that, but, but it's our job to make peace. And you will be happy if you try to make peace. That is the opposite of being divisive, argumentative, angry, vindictive, canceling. It's actually true tolerance if you think about it. The word tolerance, what it literally means is we have a disagreement and yet we still can get along. It doesn't mean you have to agree. It means you can still get along. But a peacemaker will make you happy. The the last one here, blessed, comforted by inner peace and God's love are those who are persecuted for doing that which is morally right, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Persecuted for doing what's right. Hmm. How is all that going to make you happy? How does it make you happy? The way it makes you happy, and this is the key, it's not about you. Now that sounds weird, doesn't it? Sounds counterintuitive. Like, wait a minute, I'm trying to be happy, but I do that by not thinking about me? wait a minute, I'm trying to be happy and I, I do that by not trying to get what I want? Actually, yeah. Now, I know that's why that's difficult. It's hard to understand. But that's what maturity in the life of Christ brings you when you realize the closer I am to him, it's less about me and it's more about others and then I win. I know it doesn't sound right, but and, and don't do it for that reason. The fact is you do it for the right reason. You search after God, make him number one. You think about him first. You think about others next and then he takes care of you. And if everybody's doing that, everybody's taken care of. That's the beauty of living for Christ. It's, it's, such a, it's, it's so not intuitive because in our own minds, we think only of ourselves. But it's going to be about him. And when it's about him and seeking his righteousness, that's how it works. So how do you find that path to true righteousness? I think of some of the words of Jesus. He said in John 10.10, 10, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy But my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. That's what Jesus wants for you. The enemy comes to kill and destroy. He brings disruption into your relationships. He brings disruption into your life. He's the one who entices you and then you choose to sin. But the fact is, Jesus wants you to have a rich and satisfying life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I've heard people say, well, that's very exclusive. You know what? It is very exclusive. It's actually more inclu- exclusive than you realize. But to think that any other belief system is not exclusive, 
is not being honest. The fact is, every way of life says it's the only way. Jesus said this, I am the only way. In the Amplified Version, I am the only way to God and the real truth and the real life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. I think the problem in our world today is people really aren't really looking for truth. They're looking for happiness. And while they're looking for happiness, they're missing truth. Because they're on a happiness quest, not really a truth quest. And so anything that comes along which to them doesn't look like happy and doesn't look like it's the thing they want, then they, they rebel against it. And that's true. And instead of people looking to the word to find the way to truth, they look instead to their own desires, their own feelings, their own preferences. And uh, you know, look, at, look at what's happened in marriage today. There's a reason that marriages are failing or have failed in our, in our country the way they are. It's because people look at it and they say, well, my feelings have changed and I'm not happy. And if you're not happy, then the commitment's not as important and people are no longer committed. Think about how people act about church. They say, I believe in God, but I don't want to go to church. I don't want to let a church or some Bible tell me what to do. They've elevated self over God. And it happens all the time because people don't want to be told what to do. They want to live their own life. The truth of the matter is, it's, it's a sin that we've inherited from our ancestors, from Adam and Eve. It's exactly the same thing. The thing about it is, some people may even look at church and they say, well, it's full of hypocrites. I've started saying this. You know what it is? It's full of hypocrites and liars and cheaters and adulterers and self-righteous people. And that's who we are. That's who humanity is. We're hurting people. If I could have the band come up, back up. The difference is we don't parade our sin and say we're perfect because we're not. Instead, we humbly look at a world and say, yes, we're hurting. I love this quote. This was said by, by actually a Catholic priest ages ago. He said this, we are all beggars looking for bread, and we're going to help each other to get it. We are so dependent on the grace of God that he's the only way we can wake up in the morning. I don't know. The way I look at it is this. We're all broken. And sadly, broken people break things. I remember years ago, I don't know if you remember this, but a lot of times people would put bumper stickers and you don't remember those fish people put on their cars? And I remember joking around, oh, there's a Christian car. Is the car Christian? No. No. And then maybe that person with the fish sticker, you know, might not drive perfect. And then you think, oh, Christians, I can't believe they drive like that. And in my mind, I'm thinking, really? Drive like everybody else? I mean, there's not really such a thing as a perfect church or perfect pastors or perfect teachers or perfect parents or perfect kids or perfect spouses. We're all imperfect. We're all struggling along in this life. And we all, we all really, to do it right and to experience that happiness that God has promised, we have to then submit our lives to him. It's just like that word that came this morning. God loves us. He knows where we're at. But then we have to choose to follow him. He gives us the opportunity, but we can choose to do it our own way or we can choose to do it his way. Do you want to be happy? Then I invite you to try Jesus' way. Did you know that Christianity was called the way before it was called Christianity? Before we were called Christians, we were called followers of the way. What that meant is following Jesus and his life and his lifestyle. It was living in a different way, not living for ourselves, but instead living for him. If you want to be happy, I'm telling you to follow Jesus, to literally become a disciple. I know this is corny because I looked this stuff up, but the word disciple is used in the New Testament 269 times. 
269 times. The word Christian is only used three times because they, they weren't called Christians until later in the book of Acts. That, that was kind of a new thing in the early church. But disciple, they knew what that meant. Can I tell you what it means? What it means is this. It's not to just say, I agree with all that. It's actually to say, uh, Jesus can literally become the Lord of my life. I turn the reins over to him. There used to be that bumper sticker that said, Jesus is my co-pilot. Remember that? That's, that's not good enough. I'm sorry, but he needs to be the pilot. And I know that sounds weird for some of you. You're like, wait, wait a minute. He's, he's in charge? Yes. He needs to be Lord. It's not just that you follow him when it's convenient or you follow him when it's fun or you follow him if it makes you happy. The fact is, following him will make you happy, but for that to work, he needs to be Lord. He needs to be in control. What that means is he controls all those things, the choices, what you do with your life, the way you live your life, all of those things. What it means is this, not just that when it's convenient, not just the, some parts, but the whole thing. And when he says... You're going to be happy if you're humble. You're going to be happy if you're repentant and sorry for sin. You're going to be happy if you hunger after righteousness. You're going to be happy if you're merciful and if you're pure in heart. You're going to be happy if you're a peacemaker and if you're actually persecuted for righteousness and doing righteous things. For that to happen, you have to give him everything. I'm going to ask everybody in the, in the room to close their eyes. Any of you who are watching on the, on the live stream, I just I want to ask you to close your eyes. If you're watching on Monday or Tuesday, I'm just ask you to just close your eyes for a minute. The reason I ask this is because it gives you a sense of privacy in a room full of people that, that you can just be alone with your thoughts and my voice for a minute. You may have been serving God for a long time, maybe coming to church, but you realize there's parts of your life you haven't quite given over to him. You may have been holding on to some grievances or, or maybe there's some things where you think, I'm just striving for happiness this way. And maybe you've been running up against it and realizing it's not working out like you thought. My challenge to you this morning is to give it all to him. To actually make him Lord of all. Not just Lord of parts, but Lord of all. You may be sitting here today and maybe you're watching on, on the video and you're thinking, I don't know if I can give him everything. I'm going to ask you to challenge, I'm gonna challenge you something. I'm going to actually challenge you to give him your life. You can always take it back. But give him your life and see if it doesn't make you happier. With your eyes closed and your heads bowed and maybe you've heard today and maybe the Holy Spirit has been speaking to your heart and you realize there's some things I need to give up. I need to give him full. I need to make him completely Lord. And you know that's you. If you're here or even if you're home, would you just raise your hand for a minute and we can pray together. I see those hands. A lot of hands have popped up here. I appreciate that. He knows. He knows where you are and he's calling to you today. Give me your whole life. Father, I pray for these who've raised their hands today. As we raise our hands, we just, we tell you this morning, God, we want you, we give you our entire life. We need you, God. We want to follow you with everything that we are. And we ask in the name of Jesus that you would take us as we are and do with us what we need to have you do. That if there's parts you need to clean up, parts you need to change, attitudes you need to correct, God, we want you to do that. Speak into our life right now. Know us. God, we want that prayer 
in Psalm 139 to be our honest prayer. Search us, O God, this morning. Know our hearts. And if there's anything that needs to be changed, you speak to it, Lord God, and we we will change it. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Pastor Jeremy.